Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10 says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner? And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given by the triune God of love because he loves you. Okay, Vince Lombardi famously said at the opening of, I guess, one of the training camps, gentlemen, this is a football. Why did he do that? He was beginning with the essentials, and it doesn't get any more essential than that. We're here to play the game of a football. Here's a football. I learned this week something important about essentials. I was in Atlanta earlier this week doing some continued education. Evie and I went in, checked into our motel Wednesday. I had a dinner on Wednesday night, and I check in, I put my bag up, and I start to look, and I go, hmm, something essential's missing. My underwear. <laughs> Not a good moment at that, at that particular time. I had orientation on Thursday. I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do? What happens when you forget the essentials? Well, for this guy, he runs to the target very fast. Make sure we have that taken care of. But in the case of an organization, our lives, a church, if you forget the essentials, it's very easy to get off track. You miss your priorities. You get easily distracted. You begin to focus on non-essentials. They may be important things, but they're non-essentials. You miss your reason for being, and you are less effective. We've been looking at why the church exists. Why does God have this entity called the church on earth? Why doesn't he just save us and whisk us away to heaven? Why are we still here? And of course, we know our reason for being, we all say it, catechism question, we are here to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But let me ask you this question. What is the essential for the church glorifying God in its place and in its time? Specifically, it's God's mission. The church's reason for being is God's mission. And this morning, we're going to look at that essential because Jesus told us specifically 
what he came to do. Yes, we're going to look at various details from all of the ten verses, but this is a sermon, and yes, I can go for 30 to 40 minutes on one verse. You're about to see me do it. This is a set. Some of you are shaking your head. There he goes again. We're going to preach essentially on verse 10 because here's the heart of it. Here's the heart of the... This is, gentlemen, here's a football. This is church. Here's why we're here. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's our reason for being. Everyone needs salvation. Religious people need salvation. The pagan or atheist needs salvation. The together, the broken, the rich, the poor, the insider, the outsider, the lost, the found, all need salvation. You need salvation. Jesus came for that express purpose, to seek and to save the lost. How does Jesus solve that need? We need salvation. How does he solve it? Verse 10 tells us. We're going to ask three questions of that verse. How is he bringing salvation? Who is he bringing salvation to? And what is he doing to save? In other words, the answer is basically, how is he doing it? He's seeking. Who is he seeking? The lost. What is he doing? He is saving. First of all, how is he doing it? He is seeking. And I want you to notice that salvation comes not by Zacchaeus inviting Jesus to his house, but Jesus is calling Zacchaeus and saying he would be coming to him. Look with me at verse 5. Verse 5 says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up to him and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus didn't wait for an invitation from Zacchaeus. He said, I'll be there in a half hour. I'm on my way. I'm coming to you. You are worthy. You're worthwhile. I'm interested in you. He invited himself over to Zacchaeus' home, not the other way around. See, verse 10 states this directly. For the Son of Man came to seek. So let's ask a question. What is Jesus doing today? He's seeking. He is actively seeking, and we'll get who he's seeking in just a minute, but I want you to know in your families, in your neighborhoods, in Lake Oconee, in Greensboro, in Eatonton, he is seeking people to draw them to himself. Are we joining him on that? Or are we about our own business? He's seeking people, and do you know what he has a church for? To join him on his mission. This is so free. I'm not trying to encourage you to have a mission. I'm going, Jesus has a mission. He's come to seek and save the lost. That's what he's about. He's going, do you want to join me? You want to join the party? Gentlemen, this is a football. Do you want to join me or not? That's what Jesus is doing. So let me try to be as practical as possible. Evie and I kind of have a running thing. I'll go home after the sermon, and I'll go, was that practical? I feel like sometimes I'm too theological. And I go, was that practical? So I'm really working on that end of my preaching, trying to give you specific things to do. So let me give you some. Have you walked your neighborhood asking, 
as you walk, yes, you're exercise. We're allowed to multitask. What does it say? Walk and chew gum at the same time? You're allowed to do two things at the same time. As you're walking your neighborhood, are you asking, Jesus, are you seeking behind those people who are behind closed doors there? Are you seeking them? Could you possibly be seeking them? As you walk your neighborhood, are you praying for them? Are you praying for fill in the name? Are you praying about who he, who he might want you to bring the good news of salvation to? His mission, you're the instrument. In other words, he's the master builder, he's the architect, he's building the house. Do you know what you are? The toolbox. We're the toolbox. We're his toolbox for bringing the good news of the gospel of the kingdom to others. Have you asked him who he might be seeking? See, it's not us who sought him out. To experience salvation, you need to have that prior call. You need to have God's initiative. See, this becomes a problem for us partly because we give ourselves too much credit. We think, ah, oh, I heard the message of the gospel and I accepted Christ. I received Christ. Wow, that's a lot of credit. You think you have the ability to do that? Because I know I don't have the ability to do that. I know when I first started to consider Christ, there was no way I was seeking him out. As a junior in high school, the last, and I thought I was a believer. I thought I believed in God. I wasn't a pagan. I wasn't an atheist. I was trying to be a good, moral, you know, I wanted 51% to beat out 49% a little bit in terms of good versus bad. In no way was I considering Christ. I remember walking the halls of Downingtown High School as a junior when I just happened, notice I put that in quotes, by the way, just happened to meet this man, Bob McCook. And Bob began to develop a friendship with me, began to ask me pointed questions. So I just happened again to go to a Young Life meeting. And I just happened again to go to a weekend retreat in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I wasn't seeking Jesus at all, but Jesus was seeking me. Jesus was taking the initiative to open my heart, to get me to consider the claims of him. He was inviting himself over to my house for dinner. And I know we get bogged down in all this and kind of go, wait a second, I received Christ, I want this. Time out for a second. I just want you to think about something for a second. Isn't this incredibly affirming to think that the God of the universe, the God who would create not only this galaxy, but everything, everything we see, everything we don't see, everything we can conceive of, everything we can't conceive of, that he is that interested in you personally to seek you out that the one who we just sang to said, is he worthy? He stoops down and he goes, you are worthy. And we're arguing about who gets the credit? I'm speaking about me here, so let's be careful. Sometimes I think I can be cracked about the head a little bit. He is, see, 
See, religion is about us pursuing God. The gospel is about God pursuing us. And we're loved enough. We're valued enough. We're important enough. This to me, this is why I get passionate, by the way. I don't view myself as that important a person. And I go, the God of the universe views me as that important? That he's seeking me out? Who might God be seeking out in our community? In your neighborhood? In your family? That he wants you to introduce to himself? Okay, that's the first point. Now the second point. Who is Jesus seeking? And the answer is the lost. For the Son of Man came to seek the lost. First of all, let's take a look at who Zacchaeus was. Verse 2 says that he was the chief tax collector. And the actual word there means that he was the arch tax collector. So you've got all the tax collectors, and who were the tax collectors? They were not liked people. They were the people who were responsible for collecting taxes for the evil empire, the true evil empire, according to the Jewish people, the Roman Empire. And the tax collectors were the ones responsible for collecting, collecting the taxes. Now here's Zacchaeus, who's not just an ordinary tax collector, he's the arch tax collector. Is it any wonder that in verse 7, when they see Jesus going to him, that all the people grumbled? I wonder if we really start becoming missional, if we really start doing outreach, if we really start seeking for and really start believing and pursuing lost people as if they matter, because they matter to Jesus, will we grumble? Will we go, hmm, who is that coming in the doors of our church? Who is that attending this home fellowship group? Who is that doing whatever? Tim Keller points out, this is very, he says there's a pattern in the book of Luke. He said, Luke mentions tax collectors six times throughout his gospel. And each time they're mentioned in a positive light. Six times. They're These are hated people. Everyone hated them, but Jesus did not. So you have, obviously, here, the case of Zacchaeus, Jesus is drawn to him. You've got Luke chapter 18. I'll just give a couple examples. The parable in Luke chapter 18, where two men go to pray. One of them is filled with nothing but self-congratulations. I thank you that I'm not like all other men. I fast, I tithe, I pray, I do this, and I'm especially not like this tax collector over here. And what's the tax collector doing? He couldn't even look to heaven, but he's pleading to God for mercy. You have Luke chapter 15, and we'll come back to that in just a minute, where Jesus hung out with tax collectors. What's the teaching here? What's the pattern here? Jesus is attracted to lost people. He is attracted and drawn. Tim Keller says Jesus is attracted to outlaws. He's attracted to the down and out, those who know they are on the outside, and they are attracted to him. Now, what do we mean by down and out? What do we mean by the outsider? Well, in the Gospels, that's the socially unrespectable, like the poor, the tax collectors, foreigners, 
It could be morally unrespectable, people like prostitutes, physically unrespectable, people like lepers, the sick, the diseased. Jesus goes after them. He seeks and saves the lost. He's attracted to outcasts, and the outcasts are attracted to him. Why is this? Because unless you know you are a moral failure, as Tim Keller says, you will want religion and not the gospel. See, in a certain sense, it's not even the unrespectable who can come to Jesus, but it's only the unrespectable who can find Jesus. See, Jesus goes to only the lost. If you're not lost, you don't need Jesus. And Jesus isn't interested in you. You're doing fine on your own. If you're not lost, you're doing great. You don't need Jesus. What's the point of Jesus? Only lost people, only failures, only the disreputable, only the unrespectable need Jesus. Jesus came for lost people. See, there's nowhere that we see this as clearly as Luke chapter 15. See, let me tell you what's going on here in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, states this as a very clear truth and proposition. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke chapter 15 tells it in a story form. We all love stories, don't we? So Luke chapter 15, Jesus is like, let me tell you a story. He calls them parables, by the way. But we can all follow stories. And how does it begin? He says, there was a man who had two sons. Okay, we get this. Characters in the story, a father and his two boys. Okay, we get it. The younger one, we immediately think of him as the bad guy. He says, give me the share of property that is coming to, to me. In other words, I want my inheritance now. And all commentators say very clearly that what this means is he wishes his father dead. The father gives him his share of the property, gives him his share of the inheritance, and he goes off in wild living. And then he loses everything. And then in verse 18, he starts to come home. He says, I will arise and go to my father. And then to me, one of the most amazing parts of this story, of this text, is the te text tells us that while he was still a long way off, I want you to picture this, while the prodigal, while the younger son was still a long way off, his father saw him. Do you know what that must have meant? He was seeking the lost. Here's his lost son, and what is the father doing? He is watching for him. He is pursuing him. He, while he is still a long way off, he's not ignoring him. He's not rejecting him. He is still, it says, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him, was filled with pity, was filled with compassion. And as he comes home, what does he do? He lavishes him with welcome, with love and with welcome. Gives him the best gifts. Meanwhile, the respectable one, the elder brother, what do we learn? The text tells us, verse 29, the elder brother says, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours, you won't even call him my little brother, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now let's put this story in context. Because this is one of three stories in Luke chapter 15. First, you have the story of the lost sheep. And what happens with the lost sheep? There's a hundred sheep, one goes missing. What happens? They hold the 99 off, and somebody goes on a search, drops everything to search, to seek the lost sheep. Then you have the story of the lost coin. Coin is lost. Sweep the entire house to seek diligently until she finds it. Now you have another lost item, a lost brother. The expectation is that will the elder brother search for him? And of course he doesn't. See, in all three stories, after what was lost was found, what happened? There was a party. The angels rejoiced in heaven. There was joy and rejoicing when something that was lost was found. What happens here? The elder brother was resentful. What happens in Luke chapter 19? They grumble. They're muttering because this type of person is brought into our midst. Friends, let me tell you, we don't want to be a church of elder brothers. Nothing is a stench in the nostrils of God like a church of elder brothers. We need to recognize salvation comes by grace. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, and who were the lost? Every single one of us. We may be pretty lost, we may be ugly lost, but we're lost. And Jesus came for the lost. He's seeking, who is he seeking? The lost, what is he doing? He is actually saving. Look with me at verse 9. And in verse 9 it says, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house today. Follow the progression. In verses 2 to 4, you have Zacchaeus being drawn by Jesus. Jesus is seeking him. Remember that? But what do you see? You see signs. Zacchaeus is willing to get out there. He's climbing a sycamore tree. He's being vulnerable. He knows his spiritual need. He's interested in who this Jesus was. And he's wanting to see and get to know Jesus. Then in verses 5 to 6, Jesus shows Zacchaeus the gospel. He says, come down, I am coming to your house. Not you come to me, I'm coming to you. Zacchaeus did not invite Jesus. Jesus invited Zacchaeus. Jesus did not say, here are a whole bunch of things you need to do and maybe I'll show up. He says, I'm coming to you. And Zacchaeus understands the gospel. How do we know that? Look at verse 6. It says he rejoices. It says he received him joyfully. He didn't do anything for Jesus. He received him. He rejoiced in Jesus. That's how you know he's getting the gospel. And then Jesus says in verse 9, you are saved. Salvation has come to this house. You are a son of Abraham. You are a true child of God. You are set free. How do we know that? You've got this little bit with Zacchaeus' attitude towards money change changes. 
See, look at this. Jesus says, I'm coming to your house. Zacchaeus welcomes him gladly. Verse 9, salvation has come to this house. Verse 8, right in the middle, says his attitude toward his money has totally changed. Did Jesus anywhere say you need, you're required to give away half, half of your goods? Was that a requirement put on, put on Zacchaeus? Fine, I'll take you and stuff like that, but you know what? You've been a pretty rotten, filthy guy, you know, gathering all these riches at the hands of these poor people, you know, kind of arch-tax collector type thing. We don't like these kind of people. You better, anybody you've defrauded, give back four, fourfold. You better give away half your goods. That's a requirement. Did Jesus say that? No. That's not a requirement. Look at what happened. Zacchaeus was melted by the over-the-top generosity of Jesus, Jesus coming to him, and what was revealed, how do we know salvation has come? His heart was melted by the gospel, and he became over-the-top generous. He said, Jewish law, tithing, that, forget that. I'm giving away half my stuff. It's not my stuff to begin with. His heart was melted and gripped by the love of Jesus. Grace transforms everything. So for Zacchaeus, instead of money being his righteousness, instead of money being his status, where he, money proved his worth, money was just a gift, a useful thing, that he said, what good can I do with it? I'll give it away. Was it required? No. But what has got hold of him? Jesus' generosity to him. Salvation, the power of God. The gospel, we need to understand the gospel comes with power. That the gospel is the power of God. The gospel changes everything. He no longer was using money to make himself a significant, secure, worthwhile person. He no longer needed. If he had it, great. If he didn't have it, great. He says, behold, Lord. Tim Keller says, religion says, if I follow all the rules, then God, you owe me. If you are owed, then you are still Lord. And if you are Lord, then you as Lord must save yourself. But the gospel says that God has sent his son to follow the rules for men, and then you owe God everything. Do you see, friends, Jesus loves you. He loves the down and out. He loves the up and out. He loves the outsiders. He loves the insiders. He loves the broken. He loves the together. He loves the successful. He loves the failures. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. My good friend McKay Caston puts it this way. He says, the gospel is like ripples of grace. When you're standing by a pond or a lake, and you throw a stone in, what happens? It creates a ripple. And the ripples go from inside out, don't they? The first ripple that has to happen is to our own hearts. Grace has to get a hold of us so that it renews our hearts. We come to realize he has come to seek and to save the lost, which is me. It renews us. And then like ripples, it goes outward to our family, to our church, and to our community. 
Lord, friends, I pray that we would have a spiritual awakening here in such a way that it would be like ripples of grace. That grace would touch our hearts in such a way that we would be renewed and the ripples would go out to our families. Marriages would be different. The way we listen to people would be different. It would go out to our how we treat and listen and understand each other, and it would go out to our community. And it would go on and on 